All right. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another Ask Me Anything episode of The Art of Crime. Today, we're capping off season two, Assassins. Thanks to everyone who submitted questions. There's not much more to say up front, really. So let's cue the theme music and get on with it. First question comes from Chad, who lives in Washington, D.C. Chad asks, if you had to do one more episode about a previously not covered artist assassin, who would it be about? Good question. I would have to make an episode about Marlena Dietrich. Now, you might be saying to yourself, Marlena Dietrich never assassinated anyone, and that is correct. However, according to her boyfriend and fellow movie star, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., she hatched a plan to assassinate Hitler. Not even kidding here. This blew my mind when I found out about it. So Marlena Dietrich was already living in the United States when the Nazis rose to power in the early 1930s. She hated everything about Hitler. She hated everything about the Nazis. In fact, she apparently helped fund the escape of several friends back home in Germany. But that was not enough for her. And at some point, she decided, or at least contemplated, the possibility of assassinating Hitler. And here was her plan. She told Fairbanks that she would agree to make one German propaganda film. And I like to imagine that it would have been with Riefenstahl. But this, she hoped, would allow her to get close to Hitler. And what she would do would be to seduce him and then murder him. Here's what Dietrich said about it. And we've heard about this by way of Fairbanks. So here's what Fairbanks said Dietrich told him. I would gush over him, how I feel about him, intimating that I'm desperately in love with him. I've heard that Hitler likes me, and I'm certain he would agree. She was right. Dietrich actually was Hitler's favorite actress, so she probably would not have had trouble securing an audience with him. But then she would need to assassinate him, which would require some kind of lethal weapon. And this was really the rub for Dietrich's plan. So she knew that in order to get Hitler into bed, which was her plan, she would need to be searched by his bodyguards. And that might even require a strip search. So she was like, how could I possibly get a weapon in there if I'm literally stark naked? And so at one point, according to Fairbanks, she considered using a poisoned hairpin to do the deed. But of course, that never came to fruition, unfortunately. But here's what she said. I would not expect to escape. I would go there prepared to die. I don't want to die. I want to live. Life is wonderful. But to kill Hitler would be wonderful. We all have to die sometime, and that would be something to die for. True that. Next, we have two comments from Claire Marie, who lives outside Poitiers, France. So first, she had a comment about the concluding episode of the season, The Last Word, where I talk about the etymology of the term assassin. And I also talk about what separates murder from assassination in American English. So she says that she was surprised to learn that the terms assassin and assassination carry political connotations in the United States and in English. Here's what she says. She says, here in France, it's different. The difference is made by the premeditation. Un meurtrier, a murderer, kills someone without premeditation. 
Un assassin has prepared the crime. The reasons and the status of the victim have no part in the use of these words. And then she linked to the French legal codes that I could check out the laws in French. Unfortunately, my French is not good enough for me to have done that, but I still appreciated the gesture. I will say that in the United States, we also have a similar distinction in the law. So there's first degree murder and second degree murder. First degree murder is premeditated. And then second degree murder is usually some kind of crime of passion, say like, you know, a drunken brawl that gets out of hand. But that was still interesting to hear. Claire Marie also had a comment about the episode on Laura Keene and the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. So as we discussed in that episode, Keene was the trailblazing English-born actor-manager who came to the United States and purchased exclusive rights to the comedy Our American Cousin by Tom Taylor. Fat lot of good that did her because everyone was pirating the play so that they could perform it themselves. But anyway, she was backstage at Ford's Theater at the time of Lincoln's assassination and supposedly John Wilkes Booth shoved her out of his way as he fled. Then Keene endeavored to preserve order in the playhouse as it descended into all-out chaos, and she supposedly went to the presidential box and cradled Abraham Lincoln's head in her lap. So here's what Clamory has to say. I've heard that Laura Keene embellished her role during the aftermath of the assassination and, how should I say it, that she profited from it. So Clamory is definitely right to raise this question because... In fact, historians or some historians have doubted whether Keene made it up to the state box and whether she cradled Lincoln's head in her lap as she is said to have done. There are a lot of eyewitnesses who claim that, yes, she did both these things. So to begin with, we have Dr. Charles Leal. He was the first medical professional on the scene. He was joined by two others later. And he claims that Keene made it up to the state box and that he also granted her permission to hold Lincoln. Next, we have a Washington attorney named Seton Monroe who ran into Ford's Theater from the street after he learned that someone had shot the president. He came across Keene as she was coming down a flight of stairs and he exchanged a few words with her, and he wrote about that exchange later on. So he asked whether Lincoln was still alive, and she says, God only knows, and then he goes on to write, the memory of that apparition will never leave me. Attired as I had so often seen her in the costume of her part in Our American Cousin, her hair and dress were in disorder, and not only was the gown soaked in Lincoln's blood, but her hands and even her cheeks, where her fingers had strayed, were bedaubed with the sorry stains. So these two accounts do seem to suggest that Keene made it up to the presidential box and cradled Lincoln's head in her lap. But there are other eyewitnesses who introduce certain inconsistencies and contradictions. So, for example, we have one of Keene's co-performers, Janine Gourlay. She claimed that Keene did make it up to the state box and was escorted there by her Janine's father, T.C. Gourlay, and Gourlay also insisted that Keene was given permission to hold Lincoln's head in her lap. But then we have the testimony of another co-performer, William Ferguson. So if you remember from the episode, William Ferguson was this young callboy who stepped in at the last minute to cover a minor character, and Keene was coaching him backstage when Booth shot Lincoln. So Ferguson says that he escorted Keene up to the state box, and that she never actually held the president. So here we have two questions starting to emerge. How did Keene actually get 
up to the presidential box? And did she actually gain permission to hold the president? We also have witnesses who state that Keene never made it up to the state box at all and thus never had the opportunity to hold Abraham Lincoln's head in her lap. I will say that the no's are fewer in number than the yeses. More eyewitnesses seem to suggest that she did make it up there and that she did cradle his head. I will also add that modern day observers have noted that nobody who testified at the trials following the assassination make any mention of Keene in the presidential box, which just strikes them as pretty strange because A, Keene was a really prominent figure, and B, she was wearing this gigantic billowing dress. So she really should have stuck out in people's memories, or at least that's what some of these commentators suggest. Personally, I'm prepared to accept that Keene did make it up to the state box and did cradle Lincoln's head in her lap as she is said to have done, partly because we have testimony from two really credible witnesses, Dr. Charles Leal and then the lawyer, Seton Monroe. Also, as I mentioned a minute ago, more witnesses seem to suggest that she did both these things uh, than there are witnesses who deny that she did either of them. But yeah, as I stated, Clara Marie is definitely right to kind of raise this question. There is some doubt as to what really happened in the immediate aftermath of the shooting. And that should come as no surprise, really, because this was a traumatic incident. I mean, this was the first time ever that a U.S. president had been assassinated. And traumatic incidents like this one definitely have a way of clouding witnesses' memories of them. So yeah, it's, it's no surprise that these kinds of contradictions and inconsistencies have emerged. All right, next up, we have Nikki, who lives in Houston. Nikki submitted not one not two, but three questions. And that's what I'm talking about. So question number one is, how do you pick things to read while researching? Do you start with what looks interesting, Google search, uh, review sites? Yeah. In terms of primary sources, I'll usually ask myself which sources are absolutely essential to telling the story of the crime in question. To give an example, I might point to the episode about Valerie Solanus, Of course, Valerie Solanus was the author of Scum Manifesto, who also wrote the ridiculous comedy Up Your Ass and tried to get it staged with the help of Andy Warhol. Eventually, Solanus would try to shoot Andy Warhol dead and ultimately failed. In order to tell that story, I needed to know about Up Your Ass because that was really what brought Solanus into Warhol's orbit. So I read that play entirely. I also read Scum Manifesto just because it's her most famous work, and I thought I would need to include some material from it in the episode. I ended up cutting most of that out. And then there's the question of, like, historical periodicals. I use various databases uh, when I look for historical newspapers, and there's no real strategy there. I usually just cast a wide net and see what I find, and it's as simple as that. Uh, When it comes to secondary sources, however, whenever I start researching a new episode, I always try and identify the best biography that has been written about the artist in question, assuming there has been a great biography about the the artist in question, which is not always the case. And to do that, you mentioned uh, review sites in your question. I definitely go to Goodreads first because the book reviews on Goodreads are out of this world. 
I am constantly blown away by the amount of detail and nuance and rigor that I find in some of those reviews. And they have certainly steered me away from, you know, mediocre and even altogether terrible books in the past. Once I have located my central biography or maybe my two primary biographies, or in some cases, three or four, like for Nero, I worked from like probably four or five biographies for that episode. Once I've located my key biographies, I try to be strategic about what topics I need to learn more about. To give an example, when I was researching the episode about Otto Dix, the German painter who rose to prominence in the 1920s and was eventually implicated in a plot to assassinate Hitler, I got two biographies about Dix, but neither biography told me very much about who Dix was as a person, nor did they really situate him and his work within a broader cultural context, or I I wish they had given me more of that information. So I decided I wanted to supplement what I found in those biographies with additional research. I ended up reading a ton of stuff for that episode. You know, in reading those biographies, I learned that Dix was fascinated with the expressionist dancer Anita Berber. As you might remember from the episode, she was this really provocative figure. She danced in the nude, often under the influence. Um, She carried out bisexual affairs offstage. Her choreography involved suicide and drug use and other taboo subjects. Dix was obsessed with Anita Berber and painted this amazing portrait of her. So given his interest in this dancer, I knew that I wanted to learn a little bit more about attitudes towards sex in the Weimar Republic and also the rise of this more overtly sexualized culture. And to that end, I did just do some basic Google searches, and eventually I came across a scholarly monograph titled, I think, just Weimar Germany by Eric Weitz. And it is a terrific book. There was an entire chapter in there about sex and attitudes towards sex in the Weimar Republic. So I was able to get a lot of what I wanted from that source. There are also great chapters about the various economic hardships, in the Weimar Republic. I would recommend that book to anyone who wants to know more about that period. Yeah, I guess to draw things together, uh, when it comes to secondaries, <clears throat> when it comes to secondary sources, sorry, it's a matter of identifying my key biographies and then kind of zeroing in on subjects that I need to learn more about. All right, next question from Nikki is, do you find yourself going down rabbit holes that aren't necessarily related to the episode while researching? If so, what is your favorite tangent you've gone off on? To be honest, I don't find myself going down a lot of rabbit holes that are completely unrelated to the episodes that I'm working on, but I do conduct a lot of research and I inevitably end up cutting a lot of material that I would like to have included. So maybe I'll take this opportunity to share some of my favorite cutting room floor material. Or I'll just, I'll just give you one passage. So a few minutes ago, I said that I had read Valerie Solanus's Scum Manifesto while researching the episode about her and Andy Warhol. As you might remember, the scum of the title refers to the Society for Cutting Up Men. So it's this organization that Valerie Solanus wanted to lead. And the first sentence of Scum Manifesto calls for the complete eradication of the male sex. But later on in the text, we learn that some men actually get to survive this male apocalypse. 
and they are members of the so-called men's auxiliary of scum. So here's a passage about the men's auxiliary of scum, and I will add before reading it that it does include a homophobic slur. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and leave it in because I prefer not to sanitize Solanus, and I do think it's sort of essential to her ethos as a writer and an artist. So please bear all that in mind. Here's the passage. Scum will kill all men who are not in the men's auxiliary of scum. Men in the men's auxiliary are those men who are working diligently to eliminate themselves. Men who, regardless of their motives, do good. Men who are playing pal with scum. A few examples of men in the men's auxiliary are men who kill men, biological scientists who are working on constructive programs as opposed to biological warfare, journalists, writers, editors, publishers, and producers who disseminate and promote ideas that will lead to the achievement of scum's goals. Faggots who, by their shimmering, flaming example, encourage other men to demand themselves and thereby make themselves relatively inoffensive. And here's my favorite part. To aid men in this endeavor, scum will conduct turd sessions, at which every male present will give a speech beginning with the sentence, I am a turd a lowly, abject turd, then proceed to list all the ways in which he is. His reward for doing so will be the opportunity to fraternize after the session for a whole solid hour with the scum who will be present as well. Yeah, so I just found that passage absolutely absurd. There's other memorable cutting room floor material that I could share here, but this one just sprang to mind as something worth sharing. All right, question number three. If you could hang out for a day with any of the artists covered so far, who would you pick? Okay, I'll give you two answers, one from season one and one from season two. For listeners who may not have heard season one, it's called The Unusual Suspects, Artists Accused of Being Jack the Ripper. It profiles six artists who have been named as suspects in the Whitechapel murders of 1888. So one of them is wig maker and costume designer named Willie Clarkson. I would definitely hang out with him because he is such a man of mystery and also such a colorful character and a teller of tall tales. I would just love to, to hang out with him for a day. Um, from season two, I would probably have to go with Laura Keene because based on what I know about her, she, unlike many of the artists I covered this season, was not a terrible person. And I have to say I'm also curious just to see how hard she worked on a daily basis. Because as I mentioned in the episode about her, after managers oversaw virtually every facet of theatrical production from lighting design to promotion, and of course she acted in a lot of plays, I would just love to see how hard she worked on an ordinary day. And I would also love to talk to her about art because she had a lot of really insightful things to say. And yeah, I'm sure we'd have great conversations. I would also add, if I could tweak this question ever so slightly, I would say that I might not want to hang out with Valerie Solanas and Benvenuto Cellini for a day, but I would say that I would love to like watch them at a safe distance for a day because, you know, I feel like if I spent 24 hours with Valerie Solanas, she would probably cuss me out at the very least. And I'm also worried that Cellini would just murder me for for some unforeseen and unforeseeable reason. But I am curious about both those individuals as well. 
All right, next question comes from Jade, who lives in New York. Jade asks, what was the hardest episode to write? It's a good question. In all honesty, almost every episode is hard to write for some reason, but two come to mind as perhaps the most difficult this season. The first was David Alfaro Siqueiro. So he was the Mexican muralist who attempted to assassinate Leon Trotsky. What made that episode so hard was just the sheer amount of material that I had to cover. So there were two key players in the narrative, namely Siqueiro and Trotsky. I read two biographies about Siqueiro plus another book about the big three Mexican muralists, Siqueiros, Diego Rivera, and Jose Clemente Orozco. And I also read a biography about Trotsky. And then there was a lot of further research that I had to conduct as well. Uh, so there was a lot to do just to address those two personages. On top of that, there were no fewer than three armed conflicts that I needed to cover, namely the Mexican Revolution, which is dizzyingly complex, the Spanish Civil War, and the Russian Revolution. Yeah, that was a lot of research as well. I also faced the challenge as a writer of simplifying some of that political and military history without oversimplifying it. So yeah, the second episode that comes to mind as particularly tricky was the one about Benvenuto Cellini. This one was difficult for very different reasons. Sir John Pope Hennessy wrote a biography of Cellini, and it's a gorgeous coffee table book with high-resolution images of coins that he minted. It's 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 a pleasure, it, you know, it's a pleasure to look at. Unfortunately, however, it does not give you everything that you might want from a biography about a Renaissance goldsmith. For example, it says very little about the pragmatics of goldsmithing in the Renaissance, like how goldsmiths went about their work. So I had to consult additional resources to find out about that. And then, as you might remember from the episode, Cellini not only bore witness to the sack of Rome, but he also participated in the defense of Pope Clement VII, who had holed up in uh, the Castel San Angelo. Pope Hennessy's biography, unfortunately, does not provide a ton of context about this conflict. So that created a lot of work on my end to try and understand it. Again, there's like a long history to that invasion of Rome, and it was pretty challenging just to wrap my head around it and present the information in a way that was digestible. And then the other challenge for this episode was that the the core text, the core source was Benvenuto's autobiography, which as I mentioned in the episode, is considered one of the most important texts of the 16th century, in Italy at least. Benvenuto Cellini wrote this book before the autobiography existed as a genre. So it does not really read like we today might expect an autobiography to. Instead, it's just it's not a distillation of his life. It's just an assemblage of one anecdote after another, many of which are completely unconnected. And as I was reading the book, I was just like, oh my God, how am I ever going to carve a coherent narrative out of this? There's just so much material to work with. In the end, I sort of perceived this damnation, salvation narrative at the core of the first book of the biography, and I sort of used that to structure my episode. But it took me a while to arrive at that idea, and I did have to just dispense with a lot of great anecdotes in his autobiography that were not essential 
to unfolding that narrative. Yeah. So Siqueiros and Cellini are the two episodes I would name, but maybe the most honest answer is that the hardest episode of the season is whichever one I'm currently working on. Next question comes from Joyce, who lives in Sydney, Australia. Joyce asks, what are some of your favorite podcasts to listen to? That is a good question. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I don't necessarily have a standard rotation, but there are a couple that I keep up with pretty regularly. The first one would be You Must Remember This, which is about Hollywood's first century. It's a really well-done podcast. In fact, the host, Karina Longworth, inspired me to go into podcasting. So the show definitely has a special place in my heart. Another one I listen to every two weeks, whenever a new episode comes out, is Dark Histories. Again, grade A, so solid, never disappoints. Well, I just mentioned you must remember this. So I should also mention another podcast I recently found out about. Um, it's called The Secret History of Hollywood. And man, it is it is not next level. It's like one or two levels beyond that. It has got to be one of the best podcasts I have ever heard. I listened to a three-part series on Alfred Hitchcock. The episodes are super long. They're like, the first two episodes are three or four hours each. And then the third part is nine hours. And I will tell you, the third episode is the one and only episode of a podcast that has ever brought me to tears. I, it was so moving. And the host, Adam, is just a consummate professional. I think he has a background in sound design. He composes a unique score for every episode. He cuts in audio from all the movies that he talks about. He is an outrageously thorough researcher, a really lively writer, a great narrator who does really effective voices for various characters. I really cannot recommend the podcast highly enough. Uh, Secret History of Hollywood is definitely worth checking out if you're a fan of movies. Uh, in terms of podcasts that I've been listening to most recently, I will say we do find ourselves in the middle of spooky season. So I have been checking out some horror fiction podcasts. Right now, I'm re-binging seasons one through three of the Lovecraft Investigations because a fourth season just dropped, much to my surprise, because I thought the show had ended three years ago. Um, but it's sort of like a radio drama, really. It's produced by BBC Four. They're all Each season is a riff on a different tale by H.P. Lovecraft. They're really good. I love the characters. Definitely worth checking out. I also just found out about a horror fiction podcast called Weeping Cedars. It's more of a slow burn, I would say than the Lovecraft investigations, but it's set in this town, Weeping Cedars, in upstate New York. And two archivists are excavating the history of this town. And it, as you learn, a lot of creepy shit has gone down in Weeping Cedars over the years. And it's just a fully, really fully imagined podcast with all kinds of great detail. And it just feels like really tangible historical fiction. It's, it's really well done. I would also recommend it. And then finally, since I'm talking about horror fiction podcasts, I have to give a shout out to the gold standard of them all, which is the Magnus Archives. Uh, I recently listened to or re-listened to the first two seasons of that show. And it was written by this guy named Jonathan Sims. I have got to say, when the show was coming out, he was, to my mind, like among the greatest horror fiction writers on the planet. 
so talented. The show came out every week. Every week was a completely different episode. He just kept churning him out. And one thing that makes him such a great writer is that every episode is told from the perspective of a different character. And he cares a lot about what that character does for work. So to give an example, there's one early episode about this garbage collector. While writing the episode, you can tell that Sims did a lot of research about the actual work of garbage collectors and what they have to say about their labor. And there's this wonderful passage in that episode about how garbage collectors can make various inferences about people based on what they throw away. And it's just great. Oh, and I almost forgot. You might have heard me plug this show uh, in one of the ad breaks in The Art of Crime, but I have been listening to quite a bit of Southern Gothic recently. Another good one. Now we come to our final question from Johannes, who lives in Berlin, Germany. Johannes asks, when is season three coming out and what is it about? All right. Well, I think I'll hold off on revealing the theme for the time being. But I will say that season one was structured around a single criminal, Jack the Ripper. Season two was structured around a single crime, assassination. Season three is structured around a single artist and a single institution. Who could it be? I know. So tantalizing. If you're dying to find out what the theme of season three is, you could always sign up as a patron because I've actually already published a full-length episode from season three on Patreon. Also, since I'm on the topic of Patreon and becoming a podcaster instantaneously turns you into a shameless shill, I will also note that patrons will soon have access to two more bonus episodes related to the theme of assassination. The first is set in Victorian London, and the second takes place in early 20th century Iran. So there's some pretty interesting episodes, and you might want these episodes because season three will not start until January 2024, probably the first week. I know that's two months away. Originally, I'd wanted to um, release the first episode of season three in early December, but I also had plans to take the holidays off, so it would have been a little awkward to drop the first episode of a season and then immediately go on break. So I just decided to push back the entire season to January, or I should say the first episode of the season until January, and then it will probably run until April or May. I haven't quite finalized the release calendar yet, but that sounds about right. So yeah, that's two months away. Between now and then, I'm going to release a couple of different episodes, hopefully to tide you over until the start of season three. The first is an interview that I gave on another podcast called Crawl Space, in which I talk about some of the research I did as a theater historian as it pertains to true crime. We also had a pretty fun conversation about Jack the Ripper uh, and John Wilkes Booth. The next episode is an episode of a podcast called History Uncovered. And the episode is about the disappearance of Michael Rockefeller, who was a collector of indigenous art. And that's followed by a short interview that I conducted with one of the hosts of History Uncovered. And then in early to mid-December, I'm gonna release maybe two or three mini episodes that will sort of contain more cutting room floor material from both seasons one and seasons two, from both season one and season two. These are just really 
great stories that for one reason or another did not make it into a full episode of The Art of Prime. So hopefully those will keep you satisfied until uh, the first or second week of January when season three premieres. That's all I have for you today. Um, Thanks again to everyone who submitted questions. Now, I said that we would do a raffle and pick winners of the coveted Art of Crime mug. But in fact, I'm just going to give the mug away to everyone who participated. So congratulations to you all. You will soon be the proud owners of said Art of Crime mug. I'll be in touch by email or on social media to get your address. So keep an eye out for that. That's it. Thank you, everyone, for listening to The Art of Crime. I'm still kind of surprised that people are. And I hope that you've enjoyed season two, Assassins. Hey, everyone. I want to tell you about a splendid podcast that anyone who loves art and history should listen to. Fittingly enough, it's called Art of History, and it's hosted by Amanda Matta, an art historian and museum educator who really knows her stuff. I've listened to Art of History for a while now, and I love it. Part of what makes this show so excellent is that Amanda takes you deep into whatever it is she's talking about. Each episode is structured around a single work of art, a painting, a sculpture, and sometimes a building, and Amanda effortlessly fills 50 to 60 informative minutes about that artwork, exploring what it reveals about the past as well as why it resonates with the present. One of my favorite episodes is called The Baroque Bearded Lady, Magdalena Ventura. It revolves around a portrait of Magdalena Ventura, a woman who attained celebrity in early 17th century Italy as a natural wonder for her bushy beard. While discussing this portrait, Amanda tells you both about Ventura's incredible life as well as that of the picture's painter, Giuseppe de Ribera. Art of History covers work from a wide array of time periods, so there's tons to learn. I've heard Amanda talk about depictions of Christine de Pisan, the first medieval European woman to make her living as a writer, a controversial 18th century portrait of Queen Charlotte, as well as the life and work of abstract expressionist Mark Rothko. So if you're into art and history, you should get into Art of History. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. You've been listening to The Art of Crime, created, written, and narrated by yours truly, Gavin Whitehead. Liam Bellman Sharp edited sound and composed the score. Last but not least, a thousand thanks to research and production assistant Ken Symphonies. The Art of Crime is part of the Airwave Media Network. To find out more about their excellent programming, visit www.airwavemedia.com. If you like what you heard on The Art of Crime, please tell the world, by which I mean everyone you know, plus the occasional stranger. Also, if you can, take a moment to rate and review the podcast. It goes a long way in helping others find out about the show. Finally, all throughout history, artists have relied on the support of patrons to make their work. The same holds true for podcasters making shows about historical artists, so please consider making a donation at www.patreon.com slash artofcrimepodcast. Every bit counts and is massively appreciated. As a reminder, be sure to check out the Art of Crime website at www.artofcrimepodcast.com. It features all kinds of images relevant to the show, including maps, drawings, paintings, photographs, sheet music, and more. You can also follow us on Facebook at Art of Crime Podcast, Instagram at Art of Crime Podcast, and Twitter at Art of Crime Pod. If you have questions, comments, or feedback, please don't hesitate to drop me a line at artofcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time.